welcome to the fourth episode of our podcast, Baswara, Ideas for Malaysia by the Hub Movement. Hub was founded to champion the voice of youth in nation building. Now in the UK, we aim to provide a platform for aspiring young Malaysians to exchange ideas on a variety of topics that contribute to building Malaysia. In this month's podcast, we focus on the topic of the power of youths within the Malaysian political landscape. I'm Joan, a first-year history student studying at King's, and I'm interested in understanding how youths are able to improve Malaysia in the long run. And I'm Idris, a final-year history student at King's. Joining us today is Tan Chi Yong, the founder of the Hub Movement and a, and a former Perdana Fellow, alongside Amir Raslan Noor Hisham, the Secretary General of KPUM, otherwise known as the United Kingdom and IR Malaysian Law Students' Union. Before we begin, I'd like to reiterate that we'll be focusing on issues that are politically neutral, as we see Albersfara podcast as a place for discussion. In other words, let's keep things as apolitical as possible. And what's the most neutral thing we can start off with? Yourselves. So, gentlemen, why don't we just go around the table and introduce yourselves. Hi, good to see everyone. My name is Chi Yong. Yeah, I'm the founder of the Hub Movement, so I'm hoping to use this movement to inspire more young Malaysians to take part in nation-building activities, you know, hoping to inspire them and bring them for lead them to understand the importance of their participation in politics and deciding the future of the nation. Yeah. Um, my name is Amir Aslan. Um, my friends call me Milan. Uh, I'm, yeah, as she mentioned, I'm the second gen of KPUM, which is the... Um, union for law students, uh, Malaysian law students in the UK, and I'm very interested in issues that are that revolve around law and politics, especially law and politics in Malaysia, and I'm also very very interested in youth uh, policy making and youth uh, activism in Malaysia, which is why I'm here today. All right, well, it's great to have you both on with us today. So to start today's discussion, I want to know your thoughts on how a young person can impact Malaysia's standing. With young people like Greta Thunberg campaigning her way to speak at the World Economic Forum and Said Sadiq becoming the Minister of Youth and Sport, there are many ways impact can be made. Chiyong, yes, you founded the Hub Movement as a potential platform for youth involvement in policy. What gap do you feel this organization can fill in providing a platform for young voices in our political landscape. I think before we talk about the impact of youth, we must understand the characteristic of young people first. Firstly, they are creative, they are entrepreneurial, and more importantly, they are pragmatic sometimes and courageous than older generation. Why? Because because of this characteristic, they can be there and courageous to make bold decisions for themselves, to make a change, to bring forward a revolution, or to impact the world in a better way. That is why I feel establishing the, the hub movement actually can provide them with a platform to realize their political aspirations to make Malaysia a better nation, at least at the platform for them to discuss, to understand the political issue at hand as well as current affairs. So with the understanding of current affairs and political issues, they can be able to make uh, an assessment of the situation and to make the best recommendation to policymakers as well as implementing them in the future. And this is the aspiration of the hard movement that I am trying to achieve, hopefully in the future, to produce policymakers for Malaysia in the future. Renewable aspirations, Chiyong. Mm -hmm. And how about yourself, Milan? Um, yeah, I, I am completely in agreement with Chiyong, surprisingly, is because um, I feel that um, youths definitely have a role to play in governance in Malaysia. And that is primarily because, as again, as Chiyong mentioned, is because the youths in Malaysia, we, are, we have our own experiences in life. 
And for example, if you look at the older people, they have taxes, they have families. So their ideas of politics and um, policy and what, what revolves around their self-interest is mostly family and, and essentially things that are not uh, afflicting or impacting youths to that extent. So the reason why youths are important is because the involvement of youths in politics it, it's able, it's allowing the democratic process to have a different point of view. And that's why um, I wholeheartedly believe that youth have a place. However, I also believe that um, sometimes youth are also very too exuberant in, in some <laughs> manner. And therefore, there, there, is a, there is some room for restraint on, on youth's part. So I'm, I'm like 50-50 on that. Right. Okay. I see both of you have both of you have like really similar yet kind of different views. So I think that's a really interesting point to see. Now on the topic of Malaysia, I'm very sure it's hard to miss the recent events that have unfolded in the Malaysian political landscape. And I think you guys know what I'm talking about. <laughs> now it just has a timeline of events from the twenty third of February up until today, the thirteenth of March, the recording of our podcast. Idris, care to share it to our audience? Sure, with pleasure. So this all starts on the 23rd of February 2020 when there are discussions with PBP and UMNO and pass about forming a coalition government secretly, which, well, don't become so secret, to the backlash and criticism of a lot of folks. This then results in our fourth and eighth, fourth and seventh prime minister, Tun Mahathir, resigning, but then being appoint, reappointed as an interim prime minister while a replacement government is being formed because as the prime minister resigns, the entire cabinet is then dissolved. On the 25th of February, a, the same coalition government is proposed again and the, the supposedly future prime minister, um, Anwar, of course, opposes this back to government because Pakatan Harapan is practically nowhere in this picture, which then results in there being a lot of tension. Now then, the issue of snap election, snap elections is also raised by Tun Mahathir, which then leads to further questions about the constitutionality of this entire affair overall. But there is, but from the twenty eighth, it's clear there's no confidence from the monarch about majority support for the government. And then on the twenty ninth, Tun Mahathir expresses confidence in his own coalition. Anwar and Mahathir apparently seem to make up after apparently being on different sides of this whole thing. And Muhyiddin is then sworn in as the Prime Minister. Muhyiddin was from the former Conservative Party from Pasan Omno and then joined Persatu. And on March 1st, Tun M accused Muhyiddin of plotting to take the Premiership and now, as of now, it's basically still there. All the ministers have been elected and it looks like this coalition government with Pas, Omno and Persatu is here to stay. Wow, that was dramatic. It <laughs> <laughs> yep. was really dramatic. Now, over the course of this political crisis, we also saw quite a few impacts on the economy too. We saw Bursa Malaysia stocks falling to the lowest in eight years following Tun Mahathir's resignation amid increasing worries amongst investors. Besides that, we also saw some politicians switching their allegiance from one side to another too. Seeing Datuk Sri Azmin Ali joining Basatu after being sacked as PKR president was definitely a shocker. But I think fundamentally, we the people questioned the allegiance and integrity of MPs during this time period. Personally, 
I was quite shocked at 2NM's sudden resignation. I immediately, like, asked my parents, like, Mom, what's going on? And then she said, keep calm, Joan. Keep calm. <laughs> what about you guys? How did you guys all react to the news? I was the only one who, I guess, was not surprised by the whole thing. I mentioned to a lot of my friends, um, like, when we have political talks, you know, mamak sessions and all that, mm-hmm. that a political re- realignment is way overdue. And the nature, and why I say this and why I predicted this, is because when Pakatan Harapan got into power back in 2018, I always saw them as a ragtag team bunch of misfits. Because because the idea, the idea is that they were there to take over from the previous administration and to oust the Najib from power, which is, and, and stop corruption, obviously. But then beyond that, beyond the clean up Malaysia agenda, their ideologies about how to govern Malaysia, as in um, racial tensions or questions about how to govern the economy, um, what kind of policies, specific um, policies, they're, they're very different in, in from Amana, from PKR, from DAP. So I've always thought that one day, um, this will result in in a massive political realignment, and it, it 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 happened way sooner than I thought actually. So, yeah, that was my initial reaction. But however, I'm not excusing it in any way, because um, it's just a matter of prediction. Like I thought this would happen, whether I agree with it or not, that's a, an entirely different matter. Right, I've heard from Amir to talk about this quite a few times already, but I didn't believe it, but now it happens. <laughs> so the thing is that I, I'm quite surprised, um, like, unlike Amil, is because that we are a democratic government means that we should choose the government and the government who was elected is to going to carry out the people agenda, right, on behalf of the people. But at the current situation is that we can see that for the first time in Malaysia history, the first change of our uh, government happened two years ago and now they collapse because of the lack of understanding as well as switching allegiance as you rightly mentioned Joan mm, about it. So yeah. in this other such situation, I think there are more that we can learn. And this crisis taught us a very painful lesson is that firstly, this alliance must have a common purpose. Like Amir mentioned, if you don't have a common purpose, definitely you will collapse and you will fall. So secondly is that people, uh, allegiance uh, should not be taken for granted. You need to instill and nurture people who have integrity have principle and understand what they are doing, not just going into politics and take money from the people. And this is something that we learned from this crisis, right? So, in my opinion is that this crisis taught us a lesson and we should learn from the lesson and to tell future generations, especially the politicians and the young people, that in the future when you go into uh, politics, you must understand what you are fighting for and to try all your best to avoid all the situation in order to uphold our democratic principles. Alright, so... I think I may have a more controversial opinion regarding this entire crisis. With regards to the election itself and well, with how things have not turned out, I was slightly surprised and disappointed, although I would say I wasn't as shocked as some people were. Frankly speaking, I always had the assumption that Bursatu was, in a way, essentially, it's made of people who were formerly from UMNO who got kicked out. I mean, like Mohidin himself, he was very hardline Umno who just happened to disagree with Najib and then he got expelled and then everyone who was kicked out of Umno formed Basatu. And even then with the latest GE14 itself, I have always been on the personal opinion that PKR was practically carried on the backs 
of Tun Mahathir and Bersatu in the sense that Bersatu appealed to the more conservative Malay electorate who essentially wanted a fairer and less corrupt party who could still represent their interests. Now, I think I do agree with Amir that, yes, that perhaps, yeah, this coalition did not have a common goal aside from expelling Baris Umno from power. Although it is quite ironic mentioning that, that despite this, Umno is still back, surprisingly. So, well, what then, I suppose? Well, um, to be honest with you, um, I've been getting a lot of questions, and if, if I may, I, I could share it here. Um, I think a lot of people... Well, there's a lot of backlash, as you mentioned, right? But there's two sides to this. Uh, okay, basically, people have been asking me whether it's legal for MPs to do that, whether it's legal for MPs to jump ship and form, form coalitions. And I always make this distinction between what is legal and what is moral, or politically correct. Mm. Uh, because legally, we have to understand that we live in a liberal democracy, but we also live in a representative democracy. So what this means is, every five years, um, the electorate gets to select MPs that they find uh, appealing or, or they, they ideologically find themselves aligned with. And then, this our constitutional negotiation, our constitutional contract, is basically that the people only have powers during elections. But beyond that, after elections cease to happen, like after the election season is over, then the MPs get to represent the aggregate interests of their constituents. And they do this however so they please. And then they, get, they, are, they are allowed to jump from one uh, coalition to another based on what they think is the best for their constituents, which is why in the UK it happens a lot as well. Now... Um, so legally speaking, it's allowed for MPs to jump over. However, like you mentioned um, uh, before, um, we just had a very massive change of government just two years ago. And, and this, this was achieved after a long uh, fight to... Uh, basically, it, 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 it took a long time to actually got to, to get us to this point. And therefore... People think that um, nowadays it's wrong to sort of uh, con reconfigure the uh, government without having some sort of consent from the Rakyat. And, and I, I understand this argument and I think that is correct. I think, um, I think it's also not democratic in a sense for, for the MPs to themselves to jump ship and, and, and whatnot. So, so I, I think on, on the one hand, lawyers would say it's proper and it's legal. But on the other hand, you could say from a humanistic point of view, you shouldn't actually have done that. So. I think that on that note of things that are legal, I would also, I think this is a good point for me to bring in another point I would like to discuss as well. I think one thing that we've seen from a lot of folks is the theory and the possibility of snap elections being discussed in that time. And on that note, I mean, since I would also like to bring up the fact that there is now something which I think a lot of us are interested in, which has just become legal, which is the fact that the Undi 18 bill got passed recently. 18-year-olds can now vote. And on that note, you had ministers like Said Sadiq, Hannah Yo, and Kairi inspiring younger people to keep up with Malaysian politics as well as pushing for the Undi 18 bill. And you also saw during G14 that the voter turnout was at 82. 32% when the last election saw 76%.
And of these people, 41% of the electorate were people from the age of 21 to 39. And it had a huge outcome, it had a huge impact on the unexpected outcome of G14. Not to mention, when it came to the Undi 18 bill being passed, it was a, a unanimous vote. So on that, on that regard, I'd like to, let's talk about, about the voting age being moved down. Let's so yeah. What do you do? You think there's gonna be? How do you think this will affect things? Do you think there's gonna be more online registration of younger people voting? How do you think this is going to affect the political landscape from now on? I think uh, let me just uh, kick the ball you know, around first. So it's very important that we understand that half of Malaysian citizens actually are uh, youth. So they are aged between fifteen to now is 30, 30 year old, if not mistaken, under the latest uh, constitutional amendment. So it means that. In the next general elections, we'll be having more youth voters than before to decide their future for the nation. So under such circumstances, it means that now all the political parties in Malaysia must appeal to the young people and listen to their concern. But under this government, that is definitely not the case at the moment. Why? Look at the cabinet lineup. They have now only like, none of them are aged 40 and below. And the youngest, uh, the youth minister is like around 46 years old, some more. And given the situation that youth should be aged 30 and below, and there is no youth representative in the cabinet, who are going to be in the cabinet to listen to the voice of the youth if they are not youth themselves, right? So in that situation, I feel that youth voice might be overheard and this government might not be able to get a lot of youth votes in the future. And that means that this government will likely maybe to switch power because of the situation. If they don't care about this group of people, they might need to think about their strategy in order to secure their power. So this is a concern that I would like to raise. What about Amil? Um, yeah, I think, first of all, I was an Undi 21 fellow for a long time. Until like just a few years ago when I had a very long conversation with my younger brother, actually. <laughs> and, and he actually convinced me that actually democratically Undi 18 is the the way to go and the reason why and his argument that actually basically switched me over the other side is that the fact is a lot of laws in Malaysia um, say that you're an adult when you're 18 so you can do um, you know you, you have a barrage of rights and responsibilities that arise when you hit that 18 mm -hmm. mark but before this you can only vote therefore like essentially indirectly change the law when you're 21 so this is a, a a very um, untenable situation for a liberal democracy because in that sense you're actually following laws that you have no say whatsoever which is very paternalistic and that's why I, I switched over to Undi 18 when I thought oh yeah you should be able to actually have a say in what kind of rules and laws that you are meant to follow and now that we switch over to Undi 18 I feel that um, the youth will be much more mature because they have now the ability to affect real change uh, by, by appearing in the ballot box. But also, now they have, they, as I said before, their views and their interests are also represented nowadays. And their interests and considerations are very, very different to uh, older, the older generation. So, for example, our young people now, we, we're, very, uh, we're more interested in things like scholarships, uh, we're interested in the gender gap in education, for example, we're interested in um, the, the living wage uh, or, or like the income gap. Uh, we're, we're interested in 
uh, what kind of benefits you know the KB- KWSP benefits and and those such things instead of other more as I said like older generation stuff like um like family and and other other matters so so this will as you just mentioned this will force the political parties to also move to that direction and lobby or basically like advertise policies that are beneficial to the younger people but last point here is that undi 18 would also i think uh, bring younger advocates to the fore and this is the reason because um as as a mob like as a mob it's hard to actually discern a, a coherent voice so therefore there there to to in my point of view there's always going to be a mouthpiece for a generation for such generations so the the 18 to 21 or 18 to 22 age range uh, by being more politically involved there will be people competent enough in that age range to rise up in the ranks and become mouthpieces for for their generation which is very very good obviously Yeah and I totally agree with both of you with what you say well in different ways actually but yeah <laughs> I do agree in like on the 18 and it being like such a such a huge thing and the fact that all parliament members none of them abstained all of them agreed I think that was I think it just shows that like as a nation we were all moving forward and um I have to bring back to the point that Chiong made about the new cabinet appointments that only started earlier this week at the time of this podcast recording on the 9th of March new cabinet appointments and um i can't help but realize that the appointment of the new minister of youth and sports it was a very controversial thing amongst everyone including the, especially the youths and i think in some ways a lot of people are not satisfied which is understandable due to the like the lack of representation of these young people within the government and how youths feel like this underrepresentation is a isn't is not a good thing to me despite political differences i think it is very hard to disagree like all of us i think we can all agree that like the younger mps like sai sai and hana yo who were both under 35 right yeah i think they were both under 35 at that point they appealed to like the younger masses and they made us all much more aware of the political situ- situation and coming back to that point what do you guys think about this new lineup of cabinet appointments before that john i think it's very important that we understand what is democracy is mm-hmm. that you choose your representative and hopefully you this representative and this representative government can represent the whole of malaysia all age group you know all gender group as well as all the, from different part of malaysia right mm-hmm. so in this cabinet why some of them say it is rather a, not a fair representation because firstly more than this more than 80% of the cabinet members are male this is the first thing not to mention youth none of them are youth from the youth get a uh, age group as well so in that sense the youngest youth and sport minister as you rightly pointed out mm-hmm. uh, is a guy called um Datuk Rizal Mirakan who is 46 year old i'm not criticizing his ability or his competence i'm just saying that you as representing malaysia you should have representative from all different part of malaysia and different group of people and youth is essentially a part of it because more than half of malaysian youth are the citizens of malaysia right so mm. how could like such a huge amount number of people in malaysia have no representative which is quite questionable so it question about the government representation it question about fair representation and what is the value of democracy if this government don't uphold it 
in this cabinet, right? So this is, I just feel there are more to be done, especially in this government and to improve the representation and their uh, fair share in the cabinet. Well, um, well, that's a very complicated <laughs> question. <laughs> but I think um, I'll try to address it in two different ways. And the first thing is, I, I believe in um, the opinions that you guys, both of you seem to have, is in relation to the optics of it. And, and I completely agree with you on that point, is that Malaysia is multicultural, multi-ethnic. We have obviously two genders, and we have many races, and we have different age groups. So it's very important, um, optics-wise, to have representation of different um, demographics because it allows those demographics to feel that they have the ability to um, determine their own uh, outcomes. Uh, they have a voice in, in the policies and the laws that are being made. So in that sense, it is very important. But to play devil's advocate on the other side is that there's also the idea of competency and, and, and results. So if we judge ministers and governments solely based on results, then one can also make the argument that whatever your skin color, age, or ethnicity doesn't really matter if at the end of the day, they bring policies that can benefit Malaysia. So in that sense, um, competency might, if you look at it from a competency point of view, you can overlook some of the representation issues that you brought up. However, I believe that there's a, there's a room for balance here. And I think personally, based on the cabinet that has been, just been announced, I think it swings too much on the, um, un like basically it's, basically it, it looks weird. And <laughs> uh, it, 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 it raises questions as to, is this really uh, based on competency and meritocracy if you have this um, lack of representation? Yeah, and I really agree with like what you said, like what you brought to the table. Those are like really, really interesting points. Um, well, on that note, I feel like for me, I suggest that there should be new thresholds for like the appointment of the Minister of Youth. So like not only do you have to be like a competent MP or senator, but you would also have to be part of the youth, like youth age group too. I was reading this Deloitte paper on the fourth industrial revolution like a few days ago. <laughs> Very interesting report, by the way. You guys should go check it out. Um, to me, I found it really appalling how youth ministers are not actually usually youths. And we're talking about this in a, like, a worldwide global context. So most youth ministers around the world are not, are not actually part of the youth age group. And like this can actually be a very negative impact on our readiness for the fourth industrial revolution and when i say our readiness i mean like the youth's readiness readiness for the fourth industrial revolution and i think that comes down to like how important the voices of the youth are youths are like in in both like a worldwide context and within the context of malaysia and especially in malaysia because of this new cabinet lineup now to me, in a way, like then again, right, like the whole cabinet lineup thing, um, I feel like the reason why um, an older Minister of Youth and Sports was appointed was due to like this 
kind of lack of both competency and like youth youthful competent MPs essentially and um to me I think Malaysia needs like younger MPs or people within the political landscape and like this really depends on like the demographics within the party or like within the party in power and like the capabilities of these younger political leaders so like think about it in the sense that like if they're really bad at their job right then what's the point of them being like the minister of youth and sports you do need somebody who's competent like Amir has just mentioned like a few minutes ago <laughs> and um, that's why I think it's very important to instill this political awareness amongst youths in Malaysia and to develop these youths into like formidable political figures or leaders to improve the country in the long run now I just have like this question where how do you guys think it should be done? I think, Joan, um, beyond just competency and meritocracy, right, I think it's more important for, as a matter of principle, to have youth in the cabinet. Why? Because the argument goes, just like the suffragettes movement in the UK, mm. like 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. So in the past, they say that, you know, uh, women have no experience in political participation, therefore they should not be given a vote, which is quite, un in today's it, circumstance, right? Yeah, it's radical. It's very mm -hmm. radical and unreasonable as well, right? Yeah. So, in today's argument on youth as well, I think the same argument should apply. Doesn't mean, okay, you might not have sufficient experience in politics, doesn't mean they should not be given a say in politics, right? Mm. Because it concerns their future. In the past, you have a male minister taking care of female affairs, which is already outrageous today. Mm -hmm. And the same goes for our cabinet. We have an older generation to take charge of the youth affair, and now they are deciding our future. So this is definitely not right. As a matter of principle, as you rightly mentioned, Joan, is that we should not only nurture young politicians, and we should also take care of them and let them in charge of the future. As a matter of principle, we should support it as a matter of uh, rights as a citizen, and also their say will be heard so that their welfare will be taken care of by this government. And it is a principle of democracy and the support for fair representation. And I agree on that, actually. Amir, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's a theme that I bring up points that they are not mainstream I guess today and um, I think you are definitely correct De definitely there are institutional and cultural barriers to young people getting into government today there's no doubt about that let's let's get it clear first I'm mm. not denying the existence of that mm. however you also have to take this other point in consideration that is most ministers and most politicians in Malaysia most cabinet uh, members um, people who have who are in positions of authority and and in government, they are first and foremost MPs or, as we call it, wakil rakyat. The problem with actually getting to a position of governance is that you have to actually get elected in the first place, and the problem is that that is the skills that you need to have in order to govern successfully or in order to launch successful policies. And, and govern the country or, or uh, you know, increase the economy and all of these kind of things is very different to this kind of skills that you need to get elected in your constituent. So this is, I think this is the primary factor why certain demographics, certain ethnicities get elected more than other ethnicities, certain genders get uh, elected more than other genders and certain uh, age group get, uh, gets elected more than other age groups. Mm -hmm. It's because you have to First, uh, okay, let, let's start off from the beginning. First, you have to join a political party and then you need to um, garner enough influence and attention from the party elders 
to actually get placed into a constituent to fight for that constituent. And then you need to be able to lobby support for that constituent. You have to win the support of that people there. And then once your coalition is in government, again, you need to garner enough influence and attention to be selected as a minister into cabinet by the by the by whoever the PM is at the time. And this requires a lot of skills that, that are different. These skills are... Uh, essentially negotiating skills um, some people might call it uh, the, the more dark artsy kind of, kind of <laughs> skills Polit- people call it politicking right and it's the kind, same kind of skills that you need to have in order to climb the corporate ladder in, in, in a big uh, organization for example and that's why I believe that aside from being actual politicians themselves there's another role for youth today and that is what, essentially what we're doing today right now so there's, there's a role for youth in indirect uh, policy making, in, in policy, policy advocacy, in debates, in, in you know, the reformacy movement, Bersay movement, uh, conferences, talks, debates, all this kind of good stuff. Because I think by in this soft sort of arena, we are able to be much more idealistic than we are if we get into those positions of governance. And the reason why, I think, to give a broad stroke explanation as to why the cabinet position is in the way that it is today is because um, the PM has to sort of man- maintain a very um, fragile uh, coalition in, in himself. So he awards um, the political positions of, of ministers, of cabinet positions to key individuals that will help that coalition stay afloat and, and get re-elected for the next, uh, get re-elected for the next election. So, as I mentioned, this, I think, people don't see this. People don't know that actually to become a politician, it's more than just having political ideas. You need to have that. You need to have that Mm -hmm. political know-how, as they call it. I myself would like to take a middle ground stance between the two of your arguments, where I believe that, yes, I think from my own observations with politics, I mean, the crisis itself demonstrates how integral and important political networks are in establishing the ruling elite of a country essentially but at the same time i also would like to advocate and highlight the fact that when you look at who's in charge of the government now you don't often see a lot of grassroots politicians involved at higher levels and even then this still doesn't explain the fact that there aren't a lot of people who are getting involved, at least for a long while. There have been a lot of minorities who haven't gotten involved at the lower levels of these level of these politics to be able to start developing their networks. And I think that my personal opinion is that this should change. And I think that our government is moving slightly in a better direction in the sense that what we need, at least for now, is to start at the foundation, start the roots, to get women to get people from all different walks of life involved at these small levels and hopefully from there you can get people who can eventually garner support and garner influence within their own parties whichever side that may be on to be able to represent the youth and to represent those who are underrepresented in government because regardless of political and of blog yes you can argue about competency yes competency is always good but even then this is my personal stance on it. Competency of people who come from one specific group may sometimes exclude or underplay certain factors 
which are not looked at just because they haven't experienced that factor of life. I mean, for example, let's take what Chiang mentioned. Min a man going over women's affairs. I mean, that mean I suppose that may be a bit sort of a presumption that I may assume that just because he's a man, he doesn't know what it's like for a woman, essentially. But it is sort of, there is room where more input should be given, is what I think. And there should be more people involved in the, in the decision-making process eventually at some point. Yeah, and I agree with all your points, Idris. And coming to that point, right, I think it's so important for us to understand that we need to instill political awareness amongst, like, youths in Malaysia and develop these youths into, like, into into better figures to, like, govern in, like, within government. Um, okay, we need more youths to engage in the governance of the nation and have more youthful ministers, essentially, to rise within the country through different platforms. Um... And we also need youths who are interested in policy making. Now, what kind of platforms do both of you guys think that we can do this to instill this political awareness amongst youths? Okay, um, this is my favourite question of the lot, actually. <laughs> and the reason is because I differ from a lot of my colleagues in this. is because I'm a very um, bottoms-up kind of guy. So, and the reason is because maybe I'm very idealistic, maybe I was um, raised in the reformacies of like era and I, I get I got to see how movements from the grassroots, you know, brave, brave citizens from the bottom are able to spark a change and, and you know the change in their hearts and minds, this this sort of thing. And this is in contrast to direct placement of people in governance. And let me explain first why, because I feel that again going to my answer from to the previous question because I think that once you're in a very high position of governance and authority, I think you are beholden to a lot of interests. So you have to manage expectations from your party, from you know your elders, um, you know your constituents, you know your people will come up to you and request this and that, and therefore you have to manage this, and therefore a lot of your idealism might be eroded, or you might put a lot of breaks into. Um, the sort of things that you wanted to bring when you ran for office in the first place. And to a certain degree, I think that's the accusation that has been leveled to Sheikh Sadiq, for example. And I think this is why I really, really, really believe in polit political activism and polit political advocacy. So there's a lot of room for youth, for the young people to leverage on technology, uh, social media, blogs, websites, podcasts, um, Twitter, Facebook and all this good stuff Instagram, Insta Story, to actually use their knowledge in, in this technological stuff to actually um, bring their ideas forward and, and start to actually uh, initiate very very important uh, conversations that previously you would not be able to have so this is the kind of platform that I'm always advocating and I think this is the platform that the youth have to take advantage of so this is in addition, of course, to direct placement of use in, in government. Yes, uh, I agree with uh, Amir actually on this point. But on, on the other hand, as you mentioned rightly, is that direct placement, I think they, they do have a benefit. Why? Because is that as you assume a power of greater position, there are more, much more external factors you need to consider, which in real life, for example, which is the reality. 
So in the government, you need to think about external situation, financial situation, think about a lot of other things alongside your idealism, right? So I know that might sometimes erode your passions for policy making, but that is a challenge of being a statement. Like you need to learn and govern and in a way manage all the expectation and defy all the odds and to make sure that you deliver it for the people. And by placing youth in this position, sometimes as an intern, for example, Dana Fellow, which I was part of it in two years ago. So I learned a lot about, you know, it is not only you delivering the, the task, it is also a group of people and also external factors that you need to take in in order to deliver that. So youth, for example, my situation is that when I was in Ministry of Works, I know that you need to a highway but more than that you also need to discuss with stakeholders you need to discuss with a dignitary you know other country might want to invest in your country highway project for example so you need to know diplomacy skill you need to know that what is the opinion of your people and the policy unit are they feasible enough to be carried out so these are the things that beyond just grassroots activism you can learn about practical knowledge and how to manage all the expectation and still deliver on that project in order to fulfill your promises right so if you can persevere through that experience and definitely you will become a very avid statement that can serve the people to the best of your ability i think that's still a very good opportunity you know for the young people that I still have okay. Mm-hmm. And for myself, I'm going to be honest, I think I'm going to be the odd one out here today because I believe there is a third way throughout this. I mean, when you're talking about building up competencies, you don't have to just go through politics. I mean, that you become beholden to interest essentially. So what is the alternative then? The alternatives are to go through options where maybe you aren't. Maybe, for example, you get involved in policy services. Maybe you become a observer, not perhaps through activism or grassroots activism, but perhaps by becoming part of a policy think tank. Where civil you become, service? But yes, civil service, for example, becoming a, dip, yeah, becoming a diplomat. When was the last time you heard somebody wanting to become an ambassador? My mother. <laughs> <laughs> from our generation. Okay. From our generation. Okay. Yes, but, then that, but the point still stands. There are all these other alternative methods that you can use to get involved and to build up these competencies around policy. You can join policy think tanks. You can join policy services. You can join other civil services, for example. You don't just need to be involved directly in following issues about the rakya and get involved in elections. Ter- you know, Government is all about all these other things. It's a giant bureaucratic machine and becoming a part of that is still an option, all in all. Right. So you're saying is as like a big picture kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So instead of looking at just governing like one particular like region, which in this case is the country, mm. we can see it in a more worldwide context. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. In a worldwide context, yes, that is what I am saying. And that said, I think it's safe to say that overall, the youth essentially are going to play an extremely important role in Malaysia and its political landscape because bluntly speaking, right, bluntly speaking, within the next 20 years, everyone who has been in charge of our government and all the networks are going to be gone. Quite literally, dead. And who's going to be left to take over? The youth. And it's within the... And and it's up to them to have built up their own influence and their own networks within those 15 years. Amir Raslan. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> 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 if 
if I'm up there, that means something has gone really, really wrong. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of things going on in the world right now. I mean, you know, there's talks of World War Three, COVID nineteen. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's it's a very it's a very chaotic world we live in, and ultimately, it's the young people who are at some point. I'm not saying when, just at some point, who are gonna have to take the wheel and steer the nation to a future. Yes, persevere through the challenge. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. Right. Okay. Now we've kind of, we've kind of come to the end of our podcast at the at this point. So uh, yeah, I do agree. Youths play such an important role, not only in like a worldwide context, like also within like a like a more smaller context. So like in Malaysia's case, you know, and like they play such a big role not only in like politics but also in like matters of like culture and and. You know, the so on and so forth. <laughs> so, thank you very much to Chi Yong and Amir for both of your insights into this podcast. It was definitely a very interesting conversation to see how different both of both youths, like yourselves, uh, views can be, and yet strive for the same goal, which is to improve Malaysia's standing ground in like in such a context. And to our audience, thank you for listening to this podcast. Please remember that these are entirely our views and we have done our best to keep this subject matter as apolitically as possible. Also, we have another podcast coming up soon. In next month's podcast, we'll touch on the perception of STEM and humanity subjects within the cultural context of Malaysia. So if you all want to know what that's all about, stay tuned for that. Thank you very much and goodbye. Hub Movement, aiming to build a better Malaysia. Follow MLUK as well as the Hub Movement on Facebook right now. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to leave a like and follow us on Anchor as well as Spotify. We release a monthly update with tons of interesting new topics. So stay tuned. See you on our next episode.